Australia has signed a free trade agreement with the UK. So what does it mean for Australian businesses, either as a potential growth area for exports or as a source for investment or labour? Well, Boris Johnson, who is the British Prime Minister who announced the start of talks, said it would mean the UK could at last enjoy decent chocolate biscuits like the Tim Tam. But as we'll discover, there's much more to it than that. And why he didn't mention mint slices, I'll never know. The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. The Weekend Edition. Well, back in 1973, the UK joined the European Economic Community as it was then. And in doing so, they adopted the EEC as it was then, the EEC's tariff and trade policy. And straight away, we saw Australia's share of UK imports fall from more than 6% in 1972 to the situation in 1982 where it was less than 2%. Now, of course, the UK is out of the EU. So how much of that trade can be won back? Well, you're probably aware that the UK and Australia signed a free trade agreement at the end of 2021 and it came into force on the 31st of May this year. But this time, it's not just about trade. It's about cooperating in many other ways as well. So to help us get around what this new agreement entails and how it could perhaps benefit your business, uh, let's talk to Elizabeth Bowes. She's Australia's Deputy High Commissioner to the UK, who was deeply involved in the, uh, the negotiations over this agreement. So, Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. I've been told for Australia, this is the best trade deal since the one with New Zealand, which I think was back in 1983, wasn't it? So so what's so good about this one with Britain? Oh, thanks, Phil. And thanks for inviting me to participate. Yes, this is the best, most comprehensive, most liberalising deal we've done since our agreement with New Zealand. And I should say that our agreement with New Zealand is actually almost beyond a trade agreement. It's a close Mm. economic relations agreement and it does involve free movement of people. Uh, The UK-Australia Free Trade Agreement does not, but what it does do is on goods liberalise, i.e. abolish all tariffs and quotas on 99% of goods trade between our two countries and we will see duty-free, tariff-free, quota-free exports into the UK of nearly all of our products, including agricultural products, within 10 years and similarly for the UK. So from a goods perspective, it is almost tariff-free, duty-free, quota-free trade within 10 years. Yeah, so not not right now because, of course, they've inherited a lot of EU regulations, haven't they? I know that you know they, they want to change a lot of them, but there's thousands and thousands of pages of regulations that they need to, to get through. So presumably the application of this free trade agreement is going to be a little bit constrained by what they've inherited. Uh, not really. We took into account the laws that exist in the UK on regulation and it doesn't impact the goods trade. So the key change for the UK was the tariff and the ability to set their own tariffs, their own customs duties. And that is really what leaving one of the reasons why all the outcomes of leaving the EU single market. But yes, there are a lot of um, import requirements that Mm. we already meet. Uh, The UK might choose to change some of them in the future, but all of that is taken into account in the trade agreement. And if the UK makes any changes to its system, it actually has to take into account all of the agreements it has entered into with other negotiating partners when doing so. So we... It's an evolutionary process, but we don't see that as being a constraint on our trade with the UK right. in any event. So on the good side, what are, what are the big beneficiaries? I'd imagine, uh, well, sugar's going to be part of it, isn't it? 
That's right. And we just saw our first tariff-free shipment of sugar back in September, uh, first one in 50 years. So we all went out wow. to Tate and Lyle on the River Thames and welcomed <laughs> that shipment of Queensland sugar. And being a Queenslander, you know, I was uh, quite proud to see that arrive. Um, but not only, beef and sheep meat also highlighted. They had enormous tariffs and quotas placed upon them, very restrictive trading conditions. Those will be eased up over 10 years to lead to duty-free, quota-free trade. But also things like wine, the tariffs were abolished on day one of entry into force on the 31st of May. Honey is another one where not many people think about, but a 16% tariff eradicated and we're already seeing really high-end honey products from Australia entering stores such as Harrods and Fortnum and Mason. So that's a good outcome for our producers, but also a range of horticultural products and dairy as well. So all of those have been liberalised. Rice is another one that typically gets left out of trade deals, um, but we have uh, got entry into the UK market, not being a rice producer, for short and medium grain rice. So very far-reaching outcomes across all of our agricultural produce. But the important thing is to also note that the UK has tariff-free access into Australia of all of their products. Dairy will be liberalised over five years and steel as well. But all other products have the ability to enter Australia duty-free from day one. And that's really important because it means all the tariffs on cars produced in the UK have been eradicated. And that includes cars that we might not necessarily associate with the UK, like Nissan, which is produced in Sunderland, the Nissan Leaf, which is exported to Australia, the electric vehicle from Sunderland. But also, of course, whiskey. So uh, there's a bit of alcohol, two-way trade in alcohol between our two countries. That's been liberalised. Good to see. What about, so what about Arnold? So Boris Johnson, when he yes. made the announcement, if you, you know, if we remember him, uh, he talked about, yeah. you know, he's, he's, he was really going for Tim Tams. Yes. And, when it, you know, when's that going to happen? I think anyway, everyone in the UK is thinking Tim Tams, mint slices, you know, because, well, you know, the penguin we, biscuit's just rubbish, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, I must say I don't think it, the Penguin Biscuits quite match up to Tim Tans. So all of those products can enter the UK duty-free. Mm. What we need to do, what all the consumers and uh, the fans of Tim Tans need to do is to urge Arnett's to take up that opportunity yeah. in the market here. But uh, it certainly Start a campaign. Has- yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, what about what, how, what's the value then? How much in total? Can we put a figure on it? Uh, look, in terms of two-way trade in goods, we're looking at about ten billion dollars Australian dollars in two-way trade, um, and similarly in services. But we expect that to increase over time. And why I say that, if we look at some of the examples of our other FTAs, for example, our FTA with the US which has been enforced since 2005, we've actually seen trade double under that agreement since it entered into force. So we would see um, a gradual uptake in all of the opportunities under this agreement over time. Right. So beyond goods, I mean, there's services, there's 
finance, there's people. That's right. You know, it's quite a quite a far-reaching agreement. So look, talk, talk us through how the, the services sector benefits. So services is really important because while everyone focuses on goods, particularly agriculture, services make up a really high proportion of both of our economies. I think in Australia it's 70 to 80% and a similar um, proportion in the UK so what we've done is ensure that Australian or UK service providers will benefit from non-discriminatory treatment. And what that means is that an Australian or UK service provider must not be treated any less favourably than an equivalent UK service provider or an equivalent third country service provider that has an FTA with the UK or Australia. So it's all about non-discrimination easing the entry into each other's markets, particularly for services and the cross-border trade in services. So what's, what's, what's sort of, I was going to say services. what sort of services you just say there. Yes. So financial would be a large part of this. Financial mm. services, uh, accountancy, legal services, really important. Obviously, there's some very big um, UK law firms, but also big Australian firms that have deep connections with UK firms. This eases the ability for lawyers to live and work in Australia and the United Kingdom and operate as lawyers in each other's country, which is really important for the legal services market. Right. So does that does that you, so that's through recognition of qualifications and that sort of thing. Exactly. So, and does, and does that apply across multiple sectors then, not just in the legal area? Yes. So if we look at accountants, mutual recognition exists, architects, for example, and engineers. So across a range of professions. Um Mutual recognition is really governed by the professional bodies, but where governments come in is what we've done is set a framework for those negotiations. And if there's a, a stumble in those negotiations, governments can always step in to urge the negotiations along. Right. So I'm an accountant in the UK and, uh, well, it's midwinter in the UK right now. So I'm looking look, mm. looking out the window and thinking, you know, accountancy is not the most exciting profession and uh, this is not the most exciting weather. I need something new in my life. Uh, looks at brochures of Australia. There's a greater opportunity for that person to make the move? There is, absolutely. One aspect is the mutual recognition of skills, but also what we've negotiated is improved visa settings and, and particularly for professionals who want to live and work in each other's country. What does that mean in practice? It means the ability to stay longer in Australia. So for certain professions up to four years uh, visa to work in Australia, but also, and this is really important for their spouses and dependents to live and work in Australia as well, because it's a long way in both directions. And basically, people want certainty, but they want their families to be happy as well. So we've increased the ability through visa settings to enable that two-way mobility of skilled professionals. And what about people who are uh, have got a new idea, who've come up with an innovative solution to something or just, a, you know, a, a new way of thinking about something? So, you know, is there a way in for the, the innovators, the English innovators who want to move it, move over to Australia? There are, and this is... Glad a, you, I, you, I, I, I mean, that was a stage question, wasn't it? But I mean, it's a... Because <laughs> yes. of course the answer is yes. Uh, but I mean, so in what way? Because I mean, this is obviously, I mean, the, the Australian economy has got to find a new direction, hasn't it, as we move away from fossil fuels, and we've got to take what we can in terms of innovative ideas. Look, absolutely. And this is where I would say there's an innovation in our FTA. 
So we've set up a parlour program. At the moment, it's one way from the UK to Australia. But what it does, it enables those who have worked in innovation fields in the UK, and that's really broadly defined. It could be clean tech. It could be research and development in different industries. It could be the creative arts. An innovative industry, someone who's got experience in that industry can come to Australia and live and work for up to three years, bring their experience with them, bring their skills with them. The key thing about this particular visa, which is a new one, um, is you don't need employer sponsorship, which can often be a little bit burdensome. You just need um, a pre-existing contract of employment to come to Australia and bring your skills with you. And it can be used in all sorts of ways, intracorporate, transferees, uh, early career professionals, um, an exchange between subsidiaries. So it's a, it's a real innovation and there's a lot of information on the DFAT website about that. We're really keen for people to take it up. So if I'm an employer and I've got the, some hotshot that I want to employ from the, from the UK who's full of ideas, I just need to offer them the job. And my responsibility right. beyond that in terms of, you know, how their visa is handled, how long they stay in the country and all that sort of stuff ceases to be my responsibility in effect? Well, basically, it is then up to the applicant, the person in the UK, to put in the application with the evidence of this job offer and the evidence that they've got the right experience in innovation. And that application goes through the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and then for final approval for home affairs. So it's a more streamlined way of entering uh, Australia in those particular fields of innovation. Now, imagine this is one area which isn't being uh, reciprocated because, uh, I mean, it's because no. it's a contentious area, particularly right now in the UK, isn't it? So the idea of opening up the doors for, for more people coming in is is probably politically untenable in this in the current environment. I Look, our aim is to make this a reciprocal program. So... There's a two-year pilot program. We're really keen for it to succeed and then we can use that success to advocate for it to be reciprocal. I think it's fair to say both countries have strong needs for skilled professionals. So we would hope that that is recognised as we recognise in Australia and, and some of these other elements of the migration debate just don't arise in this particular context. So I went to, first time I went to Australia, I mean, I've spent, you know, 26 years of my life living in Australia, but the first first time I went was as a, on a working holiday visa. Back in those days, uh, you could only stay for a year. You could work for a maximum of six months and you had to be under 26, I think it was, and you had to bring a, a bit of money with you as well to show that, you know, mm. you, could, you could get by. I mean, that's changed enormously now, hasn't it? It's a huge change, and this is one of the big wins from the agreement. So now young people up to the age of 35 mm. uh, can go on a working holiday, make a visa to Australia. And the key interest for UK, and this is uh, quite unique, is that the requirement to work on a farm in order to stay for a second and third year has been abolished. So that regional work requirement has been abolished. Um so that means that UK citizens, young people going to Australia can live and work for up to three years in an area of their choice. Um, and it's the same in the other direction. So that change came in for Australia, the age increase on the 1st of July 
From the 31st of January next year, young people from Australia up to the age of 35 can come and live and work for up to three years in the UK. So it truly is reciprocal. Mm. So that's a game changer then, isn't it, really? It is. For, for a it lot is. of people. So what about government then? If you're a UK company and you want to procure mm. some uh, some business from UK government, either uh, the, the national government, I mean, they've got England, Scotland, Wales uh, governments as well, of course, plus local councils. Mm. So there's lots of potential there. So has that become easier under this agreement? It is. And basically the fundamental principle is non-discrimination. That means that in a Australian supplier has the same rights to bid for a contract as a, as a UK supplier above certain thresholds. So they're monetary thresholds. So very small contracts generally aren't open up for that non-discriminatory procurement. But there are monetary thresholds for bigger contracts where certainly Australian or UK uh, operators can bid and be considered and can't be discriminated against in that bidding process for government procurement contracts. There's a key innovation. Um, the UK has opened up that process for public works contracts. And the other element that's key is we can take into account green credentials and ESG requirements because obviously we wanted to work together to achieve a green energy transition and a clean transition, clean energy transition. So there are a few innovations in the government procurement context. And how easy was it to reach this agreement? Because, uh, I mean, being a cynical journalist, I'd say, you know, well, you're at a time when the Britain had come out of the, out of the European Union, it was looking for some wins and it would bend over backwards to just get any deal over the line. I mean, did, uh, did that play to our strengths? Um, I would say... There was really strong political will on both sides to do it. So, yes, that helped. One reason why I think the UK chose Australia is we are both very like-minded free traders, very strong commitment to free trade. We've got very open liberal economies. We've got rule of law. We have the same system of law, very similar system of government. So I think it was that like-mindedness that really helped as well with the UK deciding Australia should be its first partner post-Brexit. Um, I would say one of the challenges, though, so very strong political will, um, but one of the challenges, and I think we all forget this now, is the negotiations were launched during COVID and the entire agreement was negotiated during COVID. So I met my counterpart, my UK equivalent, only twice in person throughout that 18-month period and none of my negotiators met their equivalent UK counterparts. So everything was done virtually. That has some pluses and minuses, I would say. The time difference is a huge problem. We would start work at 5 or 6 at night and drag our UK colleagues out of bed at 7 a.m., um, but also it does present a challenge because you need to establish a rapport with the people you're negotiating with and that's really hard to do when you're only meeting them via Zoom or WebEx meetings. But in a way, you know, that's sort of like a lot of the relationships, a lot of business uh, uh, partnerships that might be formed through this agreement. That is going to be the nature of it, isn't it? Because um, that is the one downside through all of this is distance. And the time difference, uh, but I guess you've you've shown well you can get over it. You know we we are getting used to working online, so perhaps that you know new partnerships can be forged online in the in the way that you've you know reached this agreement online. 
Look, absolutely. Um, but I would say that people to people link the understanding of each other's systems uh, and the common background that we share also helps. Uh, it gives us a little bit of an advantage in that virtual setting. But I would say with the outcomes now, lots of Australians coming to the UK, we've spoken to many companies saying they're bringing Australians under the agreement here to live and work in the UK, building up those in-person relationships is still important. Um, mm. and But it's it's supported by the virtual as well, of course, and yeah. by the agreement itself. And I imagine the big opportunity as well for Australian businesses. I mean, if they want to locate in the UK, uh, they've got a big export market in Europe, of course. Okay, they're not part of the European Union anymore, but they are two and a half hours from London to Paris by train. Uh, I mean, it's right on the doorstep. Oh, completely. And we've uh, spoken to a number of companies that have made that point to us in setting up headquarters here in London, even just in the last six months. Um, because the legal system is so similar, because the uh, skills are so similar, because of mutual recognition, get a foothold here in the UK, establish your business and then look at expanding into Europe. So it certainly offers that foothold. I would also say it works in the other direction. So UK companies wanting to establish in the Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific region, come to Australia, establish your headquarters and use that as the base then for the region or for New Zealand as well to expand into New Zealand. So it really does offer that platform for two-way investment and then opening up opportunities to a broader region. Well, I said in the introduction, you know, we saw Australia's share of UK imports fall from 6% in 1972 Mm. to 2% in 1982. We're not going to get back up to 6%, though, are we? Or could we? Is that a pipe dream? Uh, Well, I must admit, we, we haven't done crunch those figures. Certainly, we expect trade to expand, but there's a really key difference from 1973. We, Asia, Asia is ever-expanding. It's a key trading partner. It is our major, China is our major trading partner, but also Korea, Japan, Singapore. We've diversified our markets compared with 1973. So uh, our trade will not just come back to the UK. It will continue going to all of those markets in our region as well. Yeah. Um, But a bit bit extra is always welcome. Absolutely. And uh, it's all all about choice. Yeah. And and the start of a new path as well, of course. It's uh, been been great to talk, Elizabeth. Great to have you on the uh, the weekend edition. Pleasure, Phil. Great talking to you. And if you want to know more, the DFAT website, also the Austrade websites as well, uh, you'll find on on them the UK trade agreement fact sheets. There's also an email address with a contact helpline as well. uh, If you you want to ask someone, quiz somebody about how you could get started uh, making the most out of this opportunity. That is it for the weekend edition for this week. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. Back again, of course, on Monday morning with our regular weekday edition. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. The Weekend Edition.